kids K through 2 if you want to go and make your way back with Mr. Patrick in the back. He's going to be leading your time. And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. And as they go, Dave, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that gift and the thoughtful gift. And no need to ever apologize for the practical nature. Uh, when when you first said that, my mind started spinning, and I was like, all right, that envelope's too small to hold a whole bunch of groceries. Uh, so I wonder what is in there. And uh, Cynthia loves those kind of gifts. I think her favorite gift that she's ever received is when I got her her Roomba vacuum cleaner. And so I don't know if that's more of a test testimony of my poor gift-giving status or what she loves, but we greatly uh, appreciate that. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 2, and we're rounding out the kind of the introduction story that brings, uh, introduces us to Moses. And this story is important to look at from two different perspectives, because you're looking at the story from the human perspective. It's of someone who started out really well with all this energy and high hopes, but then failed spectacularly. And then it's about a people who had their hopes set in something and their hopes were frustrated. So from a human perspective, it's, all right, do, do initials, initial failures, are they fatal? Can you overcome them? And then great disappointments or frustrated hopes, are they final? Is there anything that can be on the other side? of frustrated hopes. And from a divine perspective, you're looking at God, uh, his desire in Exodus is that his name will be made known. I will be made known in all of the earth. And then the question of chapter one and chapter two is, can a wicked king, who at the time is the most powerful man in the world, can he frustrate God's plans? And can foolish followers, can they frustrate God's plans? Plans. Will his plans be frustrated? So we're going to pick up the story in verse 11. And as we do, <clears throat> uh, so kind of get the background. So we, we see Moses as an infant. And then we see him, he's weaned. So we get to age three. And he's adopted into Pharaoh's house. And then we hear nothing. It's silence for 40 years. And so one of the things you ask initially is, all right, why the silence? Why are we given so little? I mean, part of the drama in that time is Moses has to learn to become a leader, to be able to lead men. And he, he's compared to some degree to Joseph because Joseph enters in Egypt and fully assimilates, but M Moses doesn't. And we ask, all right, in Exodus, why are we told so little? Look at verse 11. One day... When Moses had grown up, that's all you get. One day, he had grown up. Forty years, about three words. And so we need other voices to kind of speak into what was happening in that time. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, fills in some of the blanks, but he's uh, preaching a sermon in Acts 7 with a different kind of emphasis. But he tells us that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty. <clears throat> In words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand 
that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at that retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So that's Stephen looking back and compressing Moses' story. So keep that in the background, because that'll fill out some of the details. It tells us that Moses, during that time, he was trained in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Was at that time, that was the, uh, the intellectual center of the world, the intellectual elite. He would have been prepared intellectually, practically. The kind of things he would have studied, as he would have studied math, astronomy, cosmology, Cosmology, metaphysics, theology. He would have learned the secrets of the Great Pyramids. Now, dating is kind of tough, depending on how you early, late dating, but it's possible that the pyramids were a thousand years old by the time Moses came around. So you think about that. A thousand years old, and he's learning the, the secrets and the mysteries. But one of the things that's interesting is you notice as we read through it, Moses is always an outsider. Never quite sure who he is. Stephen tells us he was mighty in word and deed, but how does that come across? So one of the key lessons that Moses is going to have to learn is that it's only through God's instruction, his power, his mighty word and deeds that Moses will be prepared to truly lead the people. So in chapters 1 and 2 leading up to this point, remember we saw last week, there's five women who bravely and courageously, called the conspiracy of compassion, because they co courageously defy Pharaoh's orders to kill all the children, all of the boys. And so we see in that scene this great virtue of compassion and wisdom, but there's something more that's needed. The people are still bound. And so now Moses is about to, in essence, he's entering into the world of, of men. He's a young man, and now this is his first encounter in the world of men. And you want to look, all right, what's, what's the, what the, the real world? We often tell kids, you know, stay in school until you get in the, the real world. When I was in middle school. I used to work in the summers with my, one of my best friends, his Uncle Joe. And Uncle Joe worked on a farm. And we used to do things like baling hay and wheat straw and filling up tractor trailers with wheat straw. And he used to call it stay in school work. <laughs> so this is kind of work to convince you you want to stay in school. And so what happens when you enter into the real world? And that's where Moses is about to get into in the questions. So this whole section is just, it, it asks us a whole bunch of questions. Is he ready for what he's about to encounter? What type of world is this. Notice in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, and then notice all the difference between his people and the Egyptians. He went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So now he goes out. Now he's, he's clear. He's dressed. He's a prince of Egypt. He's the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But then the question that probably lingers is, like, who am I? Through the whole section, he's, he's conflicted by birth. He's an Israelite. These are my people. But by culture and upbringing, he's an Egyptian. These are my people. He, he, he has to live in two worlds and doesn't know which one he really is. And maybe you can sympathize with that. Maybe you know what it's like to be divided and have to live into two worlds and have one culture that you have an allegiance to and another culture that you're thrust in. And how do you 
balance these two things. But now the way I want to go is we'll look at Moses, what he has to learn is he has to learn to lead. And we're going to see as he both his fight and flight. So he does both. And the way uh, Moses tells us this story is he lays for us three different conflicts that he's using. Each one of those conflicts reveal something about his character and what he needs to be formed and kind of a weakness, a deficiency. So kind of three different uh, fights and then one flight. And then we'll conclude by looking at the people, kind of where they are and their misplaced hopes or their frustrated hopes. So let's get the story again from Moses in Exodus 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian. Now, ESV translates this word beating. Now, I'll highlight it each time it comes because it's the same word that runs through this whole narrative. And it's the word for, for beating, for striving, for, for fighting. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he, he beat, he struck, he strove, he fought. Same word, down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And then when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling. They were beating. They were fighting. Same thing. Together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you beat? Why do you strike? Why do you fight? Same word. Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So we'll stop there. These are the first two that lead to his flight. So uh, episode one, you know, he goes out. He leads the shelter and the safety of the palace, and he goes out to be with him. And by this time, he had grown into an adult year, son of Pharaoh's daughter, a prince of Egypt. You know, you can't blame him if uh, he thought that he'd just be able to kind of just strut and stroll into this scenario and then deal with it. You know, he had the riches of Egypt at his disposal, Hebrews 11 tells us. And you can't really blame him if he thought all he had to do was just lift a little finger and the Egyptians and the Hebrews would all kind of come running and everything would just fall in place. Yeah, I imagine that he thought this would be pretty easy and it turned out not to be that way. I mean, he was really naive. And can you relate to that? Is there any scenario or situation you went into thinking, oh, this is easy. I've got this. And then you realize pretty quickly, hmm, that, I came to that realization when we were trying to leave the hospital after our first child was born. <laughs> Cynthia said, here's a car seat, go buckle it up. And after 30 minutes of fumbling and losing two pounds of sweat, so I, this, this is not going well. We hadn't even left the hospital yet. So you think, oh, this is going to be easy. But then at the same time, you can't help but admire Moses because one of the interesting things studying this week is to compare kind of Christian uh, uh, theologians or, or commentators and Jewish commentators because most Christian commentators look at this, this scene in Moses as a failed attempt. Kind of what it means to try and serve God in your, own, in, your, in your flesh without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit or God's directing. But I was really intrigued because so many of the Jewish commentators uh, have a much, I guess, higher opinion of Moses' actions here. And so one of the things is, you know, there, there are things to admire, you know, uh, that you see. 
But as we go through and we kind of look at those, I mean, one question to ask is, all right, what's his intention? I love what Stephen helps us in Acts 7 because he said he goes out and he thinks that the Israelites are going to understand that he's come to deliver them. So he has a certain sense of his own calling and his own vocation, but still there's this confusion you can see. You know, who am I? What's my place? Is my place in the palace or is my place with, with my people under their burdens? You know, what, am I, what am I meant to do? How am I supposed to do this? But one thing that's admirable, I mean, he is, he is strongly moved by the injustice that he sees. So he wonders, you know, it, he seems to be surprised that the Egyptian slave master is beating the Hebrew. And it does make you wonder, why is he surprised at that? Like, did he not know that's how slave masters treated the slaves? Had he been that sheltered? Why was he shocked? But immediately he acts, and this is another interesting, notice what it, it says. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. Now, all we, you know, I read that and kind of think, all right, he's, he's acting in stealth. He's looking this way, he's looking that way, sees no one, and so he's going to act. He's going to make sure there's no one who can stop him or intervene. Now, it's fascinating because multiple Jewish commentators said what he's doing is reflecting God's character because this, 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 these verbs are echoed in Isaiah 49 where it says that God looks this way and that for someone to execute justice and he can find no one. So in anger, he acts. Oh, that's an interesting, I, I don't know which of those two it is. I think that the text is somewhat ambiguous. But what's Moses doing? He's looking this way. He's looking that. But he takes matters into his own hands. And so in one sense, this is kind of a, a heroic act. He, uh, he acts, and you wonder, is it motivated because of solidarity with his people? These are my people. He's outraged over the cruelty, righteous indignation, and desires to, to end it. And then you have the question, it says he, he struck down the Egyptian. He strikes, it's the same word all throughout. So the Egyptian is striking the Hebrew, Moses strikes him, but then he dies. So did he mean to do that? Or does he not just know his own strength? I mean, he's a prince of Egypt. He could have commanded the man to stop, and he doesn't. So why? And so there's that first scene. This is kind of his first advent into the world. And on the one hand, it's, it's impressive. He's a man of action. He acts promptly, acts directly, directly. He sees and acts. He doesn't avert his gaze to ignore what's happening. He enters in. And you think about just kind of our world. You know, I've heard from people who live like in downtown areas that if something's ever happening to you, uh, it's, you're, you have uh, better luck of someone helping you by yelling things like fire instead of help. So you yell, help, nobody's going to come. If you yell, fire, people will start moving around you. I mean, if that's true, isn't that a sad commentary on our world? So here he is. He, he's, he's unwilling to ignore, and he acts. So he's courageous. When we say, he, this is a manly, tough guy. But then what happens? Day two, is the situation any better? Look at verse 13. It says, he goes out the next day. When he went out the next day. So, all right, why does he go out the very next day? He goes back. Does he go back emboldened? And he had the adrenaline rush 
of the day before? Does he go back to return to the scene of the crime to see? Well, he goes back. Is he looking for more injustice to fight? And then now he, seems, he sees another conflict. So conflict number two. But this time it's not between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. It's between two Hebrews on the second day. Two of his people. And then the exact same word. Notice he says he sees uh, two Hebrews were struggling, striving, same word, fighting together, beating. Isn't that interesting? What the Egyptians had done to the Hebrews, now the Hebrews are doing to one another. So it's kind of like this, this cascade of, of violence. Or you've heard the phrase, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And so they're doing to one another the same thing that's been done to them. But notice, how does Moses engage in this one? He intervenes in this one. So parallels, he sees two men fighting both times. He intervenes both times. But in this time, notice how he intervenes. He says, why do you strike your companion? Or you could translate this a couple different ways. This is a really important word running through Exodus. This is the same word in Exodus 33 where it says that God talked to Moses face to face as a, a friend. But you know this is also the same word where it talks about you shall not bear false witness against your, we say neighbor, but same word, your companion. This is the same word when it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor your companion, as yourself. Same word, running through. And so his companion. And so what we have is, all right, he's entered into kind of the, he's entered into the real world, and all he finds is fighting and striving and attacking. And so what does he do? You know, find it interesting. Notice uh, what Moses tells us here is that his first word that he says the first time he comes on the scene and we hear him for the first time, his first word is why. Why do you strike your companion? So Moses is going to try and bring a voice of reason into uh, strife. Two people are brawling and he's going to try and uh, be a reasonable voice to stop the fighting. I don't know if you've ever tried to break up two people fighting. I don't know how effective just saying things are. But it's interesting. His, his first word is the word, why? Now, this whole section, he's given us little snippets that are to be windows into who he is and his character. And it's an interesting thing to think about. You don't have to think about, right, <clears throat> what was your first word? And does that reveal anything about you? You know, one of our children, their first word was the word Nana. And Cynthia's mother also goes by Nana. And Nana was so moved when she thought that, you know, the, the grandbaby's very first word was, was her. And we didn't have the heart to tell her, that's not that kind of Nana, it's banana. <laughs> And she's asking for food. That's the first word, asking for food. And you can say, even if it wasn't your first word, sometimes parents will say, oh, uh, my, the same friend who we used to work with, his Uncle Joe, his mama used to tell him that his first word was no, and he hadn't stopped saying it ever since. So you think, all right, kids, you can ask your parents at lunch today. What was my first word? And then let them pick out maybe there's a word. So Moses' first word is why. 
And what does that reveal about who he is? His first word, why? And so you break down the story. I mean, you look at it. I mean, in many ways, Moses' aspirations are honorable. He's courageous. He's acting reasonably. But then everything goes terribly wrong. Why? Because he's utterly naive. He's not ready. And you think, all right, what does he lack? What are the things that need to come together? His speech carries no weight or no authority. But even the Hebrews, their response is one of the things we'll see is they, they lack the ability to be led and to be led by, by reason and word. Look at verse 14. They turn the question back on him. You know, it's interesting. This is just a battle of questions. Why are you doing that? And often when someone asks you, why are you doing that? that they're not searching after information. That's normally an accusation. So why are you doing that? And then the response is, who made you prince and judge over us? Who do you think you are? So they're, they're mocking him in return. And that word, you translate here prince because it gives you the context. It is the same word. That's why Stephen calls it the ruler. It's who made you ruler. This is the same word in Genesis 1 where God made the, the sun and the moon to rule the day and rule the night. Same word in the curse to Eve in Genesis 3. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The same word that God tells Cain after he, uh, when he's being tempted. Uh, he says that sin is crouching at your door and it wants to destroy you, but you have to rule over it. Same word with Joseph when his brothers, uh, they're about to throw him in the pit, or actually when they want to murder him, they say, come, who, who do you think you are? Who made you ruler over us? And then about eight, nine chapters later, it says that God made him ruler over all of Egypt. So the same word, he said, who made you the ruler? And the judge, you could translate that the de decider, the one who gets to decide uh, it reminds me of like President, when President Bush, he says, what does it mean to be the president? It means it should just say decider on your desk. You're the one who has to decide. So who made you rule? And that's going to be one of the themes running through the whole book is are the people. First, can Moses be formed so he has the humility to lead? But then will the people be formed so they have the humility to follow? Will they follow? See, they're, they're mocking him. And so you see, Moses' first attempt at leadership just fails. He's a man with good qualities, forceful deeds, reasonable speech. He cares for the underdog, for justice, for peace. All of the key elements are there, but it hasn't been formed yet. He's not ready. And so he fails at his sense of vocation. And so you can just pause here and think, you know, putting the matter personally, wherever the Lord may call you. He will form you and he will shape you. But sometimes that can take a long time. But maybe the most important initial lesson of Moses is that his flight to Midian uh, <clears throat> was that the Lord still loved and cared for him, even in the midst of all of his mistakes. His early failures were not final. And this long detour was actually part of the plan all along. So how do you face your failures? In fear, notice what it says as Moses, um, starting in verse 14 at the end, then Moses was afraid, and that's the next thing at the end of the verse, but Moses fled. So he was afraid, and then he fled. His failures had become public, it had become obvious, it had become 
publicly shamed, and so he runs, and then runs to Midian. We're not exactly sure where this is, somewhere out in the wilderness. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherd and even drew water for us and watered the flocks. And he said to the, the, his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left him? Call him that he may eat some bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son that he called his name Gershom, and he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here's his third kind of conflict that Moses lets us in on, and at least this one seems to be successful. But I just wonder if that confusion about the identity, first he doesn't know, is he an Egyptian or is he an Israeli, is he a Hebrew? And now he's neither, he's exiled into the land of Midian, then he goes to the well, it's interesting, we've already seen scenes at a well going up to this point. You know, this is where Abraham sent his servant to find Isaac, his wife. This is where Jacob finds his wife. He's saying, all right, what could happen at the well? And then Moses sees another act of injustice. He sees another act of bullying. And again, he springs into action. And he kindly serves uh, the women. He shows himself to be both generous and gallant. And I love their phrase, it's an Egyptian. We don't even know who he is. He's an Egyptian, but he delivered us. And that was his calling all along. But I wonder in that moment, he thought, all of this preparation, all of this formation, all of my hopes, is, was it just for you know, these seven people? Is this all I'm called to do or to deliver? So he delivered them, but then notice what God gifts him in that moment because of that act. He gets a home. He gets a place of belonging. He gets a job. He gets to settle down. And then he gets his own family and the names. Notice all through Exodus, the names are really important. What do the names mean? And this chapter begins with Moses' name, the one who's drawn up out of the water. And it ends with his son, Gershom's name. And the name means, I have been a, a sojourner. So sojourner in Hebrew and Gershom sound exactly like So it's a play on words. It's kind of, I mean, this is really a poor analogy, but it's something like if you would name a child, all right, I'll name him Alan because I've been an alien or something. There's, there's a, a poor a play on words. Um, they sound similar. But what he says is, I've been, a, I've been an exile. I have no home. And that's how I've been. And so it's worth thinking, how does Moses respond when he finds himself where he doesn't want to be? And one of the great challenges in our world is to be where you are. And we have that challenge to be where you are even when you're somewhere where you want to be. I'm amazed, like when we go to Disney and other places, how many people give the appearance that they don't want to be there. It's like, you, look, you can look at your phone any time of day, any time you're in any place in wherever Ohio you came from, but like put it down and look around. They don't want to be where they are. Do you want to be where you are? Now, how do you be where you are when you don't want to be? where you are. And notice Moses doesn't want to be there, but he is there and he's going to act still with uh, courage. But then what do, we, what do we see? There's something more that has to come, what he's got to learn. And then quickly we'll just wrap up with the frustrated hopes of the people. So Moses finds himself uh, exiled in Midian. And then during those many days, 
the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So here they begin to groan. And one of the, the themes is they hadn't cried out to God yet because they hadn't gotten desperate enough. So even when Moses tries, there's 40 years in between this gap. And when Moses tries, there's still a mocking and a scoffing. Who do you think you are? But then now, notice it's during those many days, the king of Egypt died. So they had put their hope in both of those two things. Many days, surely this will pass. This can't last forever, can it? And it just kept going and going. And then maybe they had hoped that, all right, once this king, this king, the wicked Pharaoh that's been oppressing us, once he dies and we have a regime change, then something, something new will come. You know, we, we have kind of that false hope cycle every four years. They had to at least wait, you know, 40 for someone to die. They still come. And surely once there's a regime change, then our situation will change. And both prove to be false hopes. Time brought no relief. The political change brought no improvement. So now what do they do? And here God's desire is to deliver them. But deliverance doesn't start until the people start praying. That's when the real deliverance dawns. It was prayer that makes all the difference. Even though there was no immediate change, because from their perspective, the dark curtain is still down, and Moses is in exile, and there's no gleam of heavenly light, but we get a vantage point that they didn't have. We can see that the tide has actually turned, because now the people are calling out to the Lord. And their, de their dependency, they're distraught. That word for the Israel groaned, it's only used one other time in the Old Testament. It's used in Ezekiel when Ezekiel describes someone who has had both arms broken and then they cry out in groaning, in anguish. They begin to groan. And then Paul picks that up, that the Spirit will help us in our weakness and he'll interpret uh, when we have these groans that are so deep, too deep for words. So they begin to groan and it's only when they begin to groan. And one of even the interesting things, it's almost as if they don't know who to cry out to. In this chapter, they, it's not specific. They just, it just says they cried out for help. It's almost like it's just a generic cry. Now, every other place from here on, they cry out specifically to the Lord. But I wonder if there's not something there that even here, they don't know yet who they should even be crying out to. It's just a cry for help. And we see Moses has to be delivered, but delivered from himself. And then the people are not desperate enough to cry out for deliverance. One of my friends has studied, he's kind of dedicated his life to studying revivals, and he said one of the remarkable things when you study revival all throughout church history is it's pretty simple. God comes where he's wanted. And it's not till his people desperately want him that he begins to come. 
I had two unique experiences this way this week because I was at the Gospel Coalition's national um, conference and it was interesting because I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's dedicated his whole life to teaching kind of campus ministry but he's a professor in college and you know you go into this field uh, because you love the the engagement with the students and the intellectual back and forth and he was really discouraged because he says I've never in my life seen students so paralyzed to just talk. Like, we can't even talk about interesting ideas or things because they are so paralyzed and worried about being canceled and saying the wrong thing and just so bound. They're just almost like little slaves. But then you hear things like little, little uh, first showers that are happening at different college campuses. Like, I don't know if you saw this week, but uh, on Auburn's campus, you know, their football coach, Hugh Freeze, got himself into a, a little hot water this week. But you know, the hot water he got into was the baptismal waters. You think of all the things that can cause the media to kind of go after a football coach, he gets in trouble because he was filmed baptizing students. Now, wouldn't you like to see a little bit more of that? And they talk about because they were trying to gather different campus ministries were coming to kind of do this thing they call Unite Auburn to bring students together for a time of, of praise and worship. And they started and evidently the spirit came down. And it started with one student confessing his sins and crying out to Christ. And they said, well, let's, let, let's baptize him. But there's no water around. So they all started marching and they started to grow. And they all go down to where they call the Red Barn. And then there's a lake and the different reports. Some say around 100 students. Some say 200 students were, were baptized there. Crying out to God, confessing their sins. And Hugh Freeze was one of, the, one of the adults there who was leading the kids in and was caught baptizing. So you just think, uh, uh, Jeremy Napier, the chaplain of the men's basketball team, said, I've been a part of planning this event, and his words were, man, the Lord just took it from there. And before we know it, we ended up at the Red Barn. It wasn't planned at all, but I think it was a spontaneous decision, and the Spirit fell. He said, finally, people are crying out to the Lord. It was interesting this week at TGC. There was such a spirit for the first time. You began to hear from pastors because, you know, the last four or five years, all discussions of so many just feel so worn down and beat up. And there was such a sense of joy. And there were so many different stories of you wouldn't believe what God is beginning to do. There's just these refreshing springs that are start coming and they're all tied into people, God's people crying out in prayer. You can go on their website and listen to David Platt, one of his messages about what they've seen in their church was just remarkable. So as we close, one of the things that has to happen before God can really come, his people have to cry out. So I wanted to take a moment and just pray for those who are working on college campuses. We have people here working and laboring to bring the gospel to college campuses. Let's pray for them. It's been a hard couple years that they can break through and God's people will cry out and we'll see more of the, 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 the refreshing springs fall down. And pray for anyone who's just been beat down in ministry or in life and that 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 sense of frustration and futility would, would not, they would know this isn't final. But this can be God's gift that turns my gaze upward and calls me to call out to him. So, Lord, we pray. We thank you for the gifts of your spirit. We thank you for the good work that's been beginning.
in different college campuses that we see around the world. And I pray for those here in this room that are working and laboring, either on the front lines or the behind the scenes, to help the gospel to go into these college campuses. And I pray that you would send your spirit down and empower. I pray for so many teenagers young people who feel just burdened and they feel like they're bound in slavery and have no freedom even to ask questions about what does it mean to be alive and to be a human and they're just bound in fear and I pray that you would set them free. So we pray for all those working in those situations. I pray for anyone, whether it's those in the ministry or those in life who just over the last four or five years have felt so beat down and discouraged. I pray that that uh, discouragement would be turned into groaning and that groaning would ascend up into your throne room and that you would see and that you would hear and that you would remember and then you would act. Because no matter how Moses could be the most intelligent man in the world. And he could be the most physically intimidating man in the world. But apart from your presence, your power, your promises, and your spirit, he can do nothing. So we praise you for the things that prove to your people that when you said, apart from me, you can do nothing, that that wasn't hyperbole, but you meant it. And we thank you for the, the joy and the call to come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, to enter into my presence and to cast your cares at my feet because I care for you. So Lord, we ask that you do all of these things and many more. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One of the things that the tide turned when it said the Lord remembered his covenant. And every week we come to the table because Jesus has told us to do this to remember. So we remember his covenant and we remember the promises that he's made to his people and his, his promises are that just as you take this bread, this bread represents my body and my body was broken so yours will be made whole. So you remember and trust the promises that wholeness is coming and then the blood represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is my promise that if you cry out, you can find mercy and you can find forgiveness. Here at Trinity, uh, we'll have three different stations, two up front, one in the back. The one in the back will be gluten-free. And once our server's in place, you come, you take the wafer, and you dip, and you remember. <laughs>